Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. Only wolves moan more wildly, especially when they can no longer find the moon to tell them where to go. This program features the work of 2018 writer Juan Carlos Reyes. Curator Damon Arundel spoke with him in an interview. Juan, would you start by just telling us about your project? Yeah, absolutely. So the collection of stories is a triptych. It's um, three stories that don't necessarily coincide with the other, but the concern there is father-son relationships. And I think for me, it's super important to process my personal life in stories, in prose and fiction. And a lot of it, I think, has to do with not having a father figure in my life for a long time and Mm -hmm. sort of being a little bit insecure about my role as a father. And so this is the first time, and it took me a while because my son is now two and a half, but this is the first time when I've given myself the opportunity to explore father-son relationships. Mm -hmm. And uh, this collection is essentially three stories it's a, it's a relationship when the son is a child, when he is an adolescent, and when he's a young man, so a 20-something man. And from first story to last story, the perspective changes from heavily the father to heavily the son. And the father takes on initially this sort of protective role and then a sort of like guide role and then sort of like a mediator between what the son has left behind. So his current life with the family life that he's still trying to uh, wrestle with, the responsibilities and the, I think most importantly, the cultural responsibilities that are there with sort of leaving uh, an immigrant family um, and very much being sort of that rugged individualism that is embodied every single day here. Hmm. So what made you seek out uh, becoming a Jackstraw writer? What made you seek out this program? Um, With this particular project, um, I needed to get a voice right, and I wanted to have this opportunity to hear myself, to record Mm. myself, to to get the voice right and the style right, because each one of these stories is based on a poem. Mm -hmm. So I have three just really awesome friends who uh, have let me experiment with their poems, So, and they're... Nathan Parker, Abraham Smith, and Jason McCall, they have three, uh, they have very distinct styles and very distinct um, ways of portraying character and their own versions of narrative on the page. And um, I was always drawn to their work, especially because it's compartmentalized. So it's in parts one, two, three, and four. And it makes for easy short story writing. Okay, one, two, three, four, Mm -hmm. or five in the case of Nathan's poem. But because the catalyzing work of these stories is a poem, I love getting lost in process, and I need to get lost in the process of the style and the voice of these stories. They need to be talking with these poems, and mm. it can't just be I come in with a with an idea in mind and a vision in mind for who the narrator is and who uh, the characters are. I very much have to be in conversation with these poems, mm. and it's hard sometimes, mm-hmm. um, especially with uh, the story I'm working on now, which is the last in the in the triptych. Um, because it has to do with, uh, you know, the title of the poem is the acronym for Stand Your Ground. And so mm. dealing with that sense of violence and how it plays out 
in my life, I can't, I can't portray a life I didn't have, but I can portray experiences I've had that have almost come to certain things, right? Mm -hmm. um, to, to be fair to the cultural experience that I want to speak with mm -hmm. um, and engage with in a way to say, hey, you know, we're, I can't have empathy completely because I've not been in that situation, but here's mine and, and maybe we can share, right? How would you say that your work breaks the mold or challenges the status quo? I guess on two levels. On the first aesthetic level, I I really like to play with Garcia Marquez's motto that the narrator is the end-all, be-all of everything. Mm -hmm. um, that you can write about everything if your narrator is assertive and unapologetic about what they're saying. And I very much let the narrator have full full control of this whole thing. And mm -hmm. that often means that there's terrible grammar, mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. that there isn't a pause to say he said or she said, that there's a continuity in the conversations between characters as a continuity in the what the narrator, uh, how the narrator engages with the characters. Mm -hmm. And so in this triptych, the first one deals with the perceptions of somebody who's lost their house, right? Mm -hmm. And what we think about those people. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the father's trying to sort of cloak having, you know, foreclosed in a home, cloak living in a trailer, cloak getting kicked out of the trailer mm -hmm. with his kid um, by sort of like focusing on other things, the trees, the moon, the um, sort of like the, 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 these country roads that they're sort of like about to leave behind. And so... Uh, Perspective is a huge thing. I like to sort of like get into the um, into the practice of building empathy and uh, getting into these moments that on its surface, the, an everyday person would probably dismiss that person because of the way they look or the way they dress. Um, I'm only starting now to feel comfortable challenging a lot of cultural norms. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and everyone in the Latinx community can sort of like, you know, uh, attest to their own sort of like, you know, struggles and sort of like cultural norms. But, sure. you know, I think part of the the sentiment that I, I'm constantly fighting back is this sort of like this, this, this upbringing in a relatively sort of like, you know, even though it was matriarchal and it was our aunts, aunties and grandmothers who r ran the show, mm -hmm. it was very much sort of like a, like a machista perspective, right? And so you're just trying to like, fight that, right, mm. and battle that in your own writing and in your own head. Um, and also sort of like the norms of what is and is not Latinx, right, the mm -hmm. the music or the food or the, you know, the language that all this beautiful stuff is, right, but there's also um, a, a really amazing individuality that can be found in that that, that isn't dismissive of anything, but mm -hmm. that takes into account just taste, right, mm -hmm. personal taste and personal sort of like context. So I am definitely curious about your choice to have titles for the characters instead of names. Yeah. So instead of naming, you've got yeah, boy, yeah. girl, uh, boy, man, girl, woman, mm. um, and in uh, your submission, it's it's boy and father. It's accountant, but no names. Can you speak to that? Um, in the case of these triptychs, I definitely wanted to have the sense of that these characters aren't one and the same, but that they could be if you wanted to interpret them that way. I do sometimes like to mess around with the idea of sort of everydayness, mm -hmm. that anybody could sort of be in the place of these people. Mm -hmm. I understand the perspective that by naming somebody, you give them a personality in and of itself with that name, a familiarity to somebody who's reading it. 
But oftentimes, I, I, I guess I want to disrupt that way of thinking a little bit because mm-hmm. if you come into this narrative, say, knowing that uh, somebody named Frank or somebody named, you know, uh, Jose or somebody, right, that there's a, a certain uh, preconception you have just of that name. And, mm-hmm. and, and I know it isn't necessarily the most common or even popular thing to do when it comes to short story writing or even fiction writing and prose writing. But that part of uh, disrupting stylistic convention is trying to, I don't, I want to displace you, believe this world, believe these people, Mm -hmm. and I don't want to displace you by making you a little bit too comfortable and familiar with a name Mm -hmm. and trying to reach into your own sort of well of experience to to tie some things that shouldn't be tied. So it's often said that art is either asking the question or answering the question, who are you? How does that apply to your work? The only thing that arrived was the sense of my negotiating my life and my world and how I'm increasingly comfortable upsetting my own cultural norms. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never shied away from just uh, detailing my hometown. So this, uh, this, uh, this absurdity and this absurd contradiction of a place, it's called West New York, New Jersey. And imagine... Uh, being, you know, 12 years old, you're going to a Six Flags and you're, you know, you get picked out by the comedian there and he's like, where are you from? And hey, West New York, New Jersey. He's like, what is that place, right? It doesn't want to be in New Jersey or New York. Where are you, right? Um, And it is right there along the Hudson River right across from Manhattan. And it's a wonderful place because it's sort of, it is the inspiration for how my characters talk, sometimes Mm -hmm. across each other, sometimes not at each other at all. Um, They're not even sort of intersecting, they're going in their own ways. But to have a place where um, English was not the norm and Spanish, different versions of Spanish were the norm and different versions of, uh, soon enough, uh, uh, Middle Eastern languages and sort of Southeast Asian languages. Mm-hmm. And it, was, it, it still is a, a heavily immigrant town in New Jersey. And it completely molds and continues to mold the way I see the, the way people interacting and the way I see conversations unfolding. And so... Every story eventually is about that little place mm-hmm. um, and about, you know, our moving away from that place, but always having to return to it to negotiate, you know. Mm-hmm. All right. I have one last question for you. Yeah. What does your work celebrate? I think I've had to come to terms with a certain um, individualism that I'm always inclining towards as a person and as a writer of these characters, an individualism that is always celebrating collectivity and this notion of having to come together, even in cross-dialogue, even in moments of narrator introspection and, and character actions that butt heads with each other, that there has to be some balance. And I love celebrating that balance between somebody pursuing what truth is that they are living out with a group and a collectivity that hopes to understand each other. Again, this is sort of like something I've had to come to terms with because, you know, especially when you're engaging with, um, you know, the Latinx writers and, and everything is like, well, you know, we, we're always talking about the we, 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 and, and sometimes I have to come to terms with it. Well, sometimes I'm not. Mm-hmm. Well, most times I'm not, right? Mm-hmm. But but the we is super important. Like the, if the I doesn't come back to the we, mm-hmm then uh, it leaves us isolated and alone. So I think I'm celebrating that nice dynamic between the I and the we.
Now we'll hear a selection from Juan Carlos's live reading. Soon enough, you are where you need to be. You turn on your live feed. The phone falls out of your hand, but it doesn't matter because no one tunes into anything right away. You pick up the phone quickly and dust off the screen and introduce yourself. It's all formality, of course, because an audience does start tuning in. You introduce the house you're standing in front of. You confirm the presence of a grieving family inside that house. You point to the hedges, to the trees, to the fences, to the garage, to the trash and recycling and compost bins, to the uncut grass. You imagine aloud how grieving distracts us from basic chores, how everything falls by the wayside, gardening and gutter washing and even bathing. You affirm to your audience the realness of it all. Can't you touch it? You imagine aloud and confirm to your growing viewing audience that we all need a reality check, but that you can't deliver on the promise to interview the family because they haven't returned your phone calls and emails even though you've assured them you have the best intentions in mind. But you go on. You open the wobbly front gate and you identify the losses that all the families have faced. The daughters, the sons, fathers and mothers, providers, lovers, friends, dear friends and companions. You stand on the gravel path. You confirm that families like these don't need everybody's ridicule and that trespassing into their mourning would be a disgrace. And you make sure you are captured in front of their home. And that opening their front door would be nothing short of criminal. And you assure everyone you will not do that. And that whosoever tarnishes this family's name on anyone's account lays their physical bodies to waste. You note the sound emerging from the spaces between the front door and frame. Through the home's natural crevices, you kneel by the door and place your phone speaker and voice receiver against the wood. You bring the live feed back to you and then tell them they're sobbing. It's a crying depth so profound. Only wolves moan more wildly, especially when they can no longer find the moon to tell them where to go. This, you tell everyone, is no fiction, and it cannot be questioned, and it necessitates faithfulness. Tragedy, you tell your audience, brings no answers. You point the live feed away to capture the curtains and the blinds and the doormats smothered in unopened mail. You point to the chimney smoke and the vehicles in the driveway. A jogger passes by, and you explain to your social media viewership that one always finds people for whom the world goes on for whom the world continues in sweat and sore knees. And you also posit that perhaps the density of a neighborhood's runners will always identify a ratio one can extrapolate to make a statement of the spared. The fraction of a population unaffected by tragedy. Something like three in every four, or five in every six, or six in every seven. Something particular that feels meaningful. All tragedies whether mass shooting or earthquakes or mass shootings or police betrayals or mass shootings bring meaning. And as Americans, we have our inclinations to meaning. You shut down the live feed because you need a breath. All exhaustive good work requires reprieve. The jogger that had earlier made her way past the house circles back. 
she stops to check her time in front of the house as if there's more in mind than measuring her pulse. She leans over her knees and then coughs and spits into the curb and then she calls out to you. You hold the family's unrolled newspaper and you wave. The jogger approaches the wobbly gate and looks up and down the street and sets her hands on her hips. She shouts for your name. You nod. It occurs to you that not everyone is trained in good intentions, that we don't all receive manuals of discernment. And you don't know why, but your heart starts to palpitate into concern, and so you nudge your way out of it by starting back down the porch steps. No one asks for an explanation from someone who believes they belong. And you can fake it. You have not invaded this family's privacy because their information is all over social media anyway. And because no one loses their youngest child in the mass shooting tragedy without television reporters obsessing, however momentarily, in your whereabouts and tears and wallowing. All you really want, wanted, was to record the presence of this house, acknowledge its embedded pain in order to teach sympathy. Social media needs you to instruct it in the ways of pity. What better intentions can you have? The jogger reminds you that the onus is on you. She demands to see a lanyard or a badge or a driver's license. Prove you're not a spy. She says, always these fucking internet people with their crazy ideas like weeds when something happens. You don't know if your nodding assures her you're not crazy. And surely she can see you're one of the better ones, that you brought good intentions. And so you assure the jogger that you're not there to bother the family because at a time like death, every good neighbor extends just the necessary hand and nothing more. The jogger asks you, what makes you such a good neighbor? And you're not sure you appreciate her third question because anything beyond two makes for an interrogation and the sun is already strong enough. Tone is a weapon. And because it can just as easily cut through time and through bodies, you tell the jogger that you're not there to disturb anyone but do you know them, she asks you. I don't, you tell her. Then why are you here? Because this family shouldn't be bothered. But you don't know them. Well, does anybody really have to, though? The jogger looks up and down the street again. And that's when you notice that the neighbor is out on his front porch. Halfway down the steps, a light, long-sleeved shirt billowing over his loose pants. And you don't know why, but you start to wonder then what you've gotten wrong about how far personal spaces extend and whether or not they're breaking down. And then the jogger asks you to leave. I'm here to help, you say, but, but you're not a neighbor, are you? She says, I'm, I'm only trying to help keep them alone, you say. Neighbors don't keep people away at the butt of a gun, though, she says, which makes you wonder why she can't understand, why she can't see that you can only work with what you have have, that you can only bring your good intentions. And then the world comes down on you when she asks, do you have a gun? And your eyes shoot open uncontrollably, which makes you realize you don't answer as quickly as maybe she would have wanted. Hesitations are their own kind of weapon. And without one, the jogger pulls her phone off a bicep strap. You can only imagine who she plans to dial. And quickly, but you hope not too quickly, you reach into your back pocket and you pull out your notebook. You tell her you're at the house to account for some final details, that the local paper wanted to confirm progressions in the tragic timeline. And you shake the coiled pages, hoping the flapping echoes across lawns. But the paper's already come, she answers. Yes, but does everybody really have all the facts, you say? I'm gonna call the police, she says. 
Sure, but do you really have to? You raise both hands to demonstrate how empty you've always been. One foot at a time, you make sure not to trip on a gravel stone or over the weeds. As the quiet impasse plays out, the neighbors across the street and to the left step onto their deck, and the neighbor across the street and to the right steps onto the sidewalk, and the neighbor next door makes his way to the gate, the belly jutting under his shirt, all but screaming that he doesn't play coy. On the sidewalk, the jogger shuts the wobbly gate behind you. And even though no one's fired a gun, your skin bristles at a tempo the air made worse by the gate's clamoring lock. You have a tendency to mumble to yourself when no one appears to be listening to you. And it's then that you realize how hard it is to control a habit. It takes all the fire in your body to cool down. The jogger crosses her arms. Uh, I left my car up the road, you say. I'll walk you there to make sure you get there. Thank you, but I'm not afraid to go alone. I don't care that you're not afraid to go anywhere alone. You see then that all the neighbors who've come out, couples, singles, strangers, dogs, something like a plague whose only name is running talk. Not everybody has a conversation, but rumors have been known to travel without any wind, and there's always a story everyone sees and the story everyone makes, and the oceans can't always tell the difference. Which is why you stop abruptly to reach into your back pocket again because you remember that your phone can capture stories too. And combating stories with stories is the momentum that long ago set us a sea and it happened so quickly though because it happens just like it feels and it feels like your skin gets pulled back and sears off your bones and you don't know what to call what happens next except that fear is not the only element of the broken conversation you've been having. You, too, are the reason the neighbors don't know how to reconcile what are and what aren't good intentions. First, the jogger barrels into you like she's pushing through you, and your only defense to hurl her aside surprises you because you can't believe somebody can feel so sturdy and so light at the same time. And then the next-door neighbor rams you, and you stumble trying to wiggle out, but the shuffling puts you on the cement beneath him where he shouts into the sky that you have a gun, that you've come bearing no intentions at all, and so you fight with open palms so the world can see how sick it can be when it doesn't want to see. You're in it thick and you throw your hands around but information fixes nothing and the heat gets hotter and you scream that you have good intentions because what else are you going to do? You swing at the man's neck and chest and you scream about the mistakes they're all making. No one listens and how can they when everybody screeches to get it away? Shrieks, someone to take it away. Kicks my side ribs to poke it away. Jabs my hips because somebody keeps yelling that they're all going to die and you try hollering your good intentions to correct the record, to lie, feed, and inform and alleviate the tension, but high noon is a plague and everyone is always holstering a gun even when they're not. And when the neighbors let up for a moment, you try to tell them that you can't breathe, but someone sits on you hard and the coughing gets in the way of everything you can hear and everything you want to add. The weight of it like a poison of bad opinions that run into each other until no one can discern anymore one hand from another, and then you hear the shot the one you're pretty sure they've been wanting to hear all along, the one that they couldn't have rested without, and then the world goes dark.
Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2018 curator of this program is Damon Arundel. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Alyssa Keene and Daniel Gunther. Recording engineers are Ayesha Ubiatilaka, Daniel Gunther, and Joel Maddox. Narrator is Alyssa Keene, and executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by Amy Rubin and Don Clement, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks to Larry Lawrence. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. Thank you for listening. <laughs>